We are uh, continuing this morning in, in a, a series in the Gospel of Mark, and I just want to kind of throw out there as we get into the Word today that today is all about bread. I don't know, if, does anyone here love bread? Yeah, like love bread, like have a serious bread problem, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty funny, it's pretty common uh, these days to find people who are just, you know, you go out to a restaurant and they bring the bread before the meal, and you will fill up on bread, right? Especially if it's really good bread. They'll bring the meal and you're like, I can't even eat it. I'm so full from the bread. Well, today's message is all, all, all about bread. Um, and uh, I'm going to do what we always do at Family Bible. I'm going to pray before we get into God's Word. And so I just want to uh, pray together that God would inspire us to understand it. And not just in our heads, but in our hearts. That we would like believe differently because of what we hear from God's Word today. The goal is, is not nothing short of God intervening in our lives this morning uh, to change us, and, and not here uniquely, but anytime we engage God seriously in his word, that we'd be changed by the experience. So uh, pray with me, if you will. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your presence with us this morning, for your gift of giving yourself to us that we do not deserve, but that brings true life, that we get to experience you and we get to celebrate you, we get to talk to you, we get to listen to you, we get to walk with you. And today we just come as an extension, gathering as your people to celebrate the gift you've given us in yourself. Pray today, Father, as we come into your word that our eyes might be open, that we could perceive, our, our ears be open, that we could hear your commands, our hearts be soft, that we would be molded and shaped by you that the hard-heartedness would just go away and we would be renewed in our spirit because we've encountered the living God today. Father, only you can do that. We, we come to you as children asking for bread, asking for life, asking for sustenance from you. You have the very words of life. We have nowhere else to go. Would you do that work for your glory today? Would you bless your people through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning? And would you conform us to your word? <laughs> We don't deserve any of it, but we are blessed because of you. May you be glorified today. Glorify yourself through the reading, preaching, and understanding of your word. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've been rolling kind of through, and it's, it's hard when we're talking through this series not to get kind of like, like herky-jerky about how we go through the gospel of Mark because it's one narrative, right? It's one story, and it's kind of a breathless story of Jesus. But this morning we're going to pick up in, in a Mark. I'm going to go ahead and pull it up here. Mark chapter 8, verse 1 happens to be where we are this morning. Mark 8, verse 1. There we go. I think it's on page 705. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the end of the chair row. It should be at or around 705. You can check that out. I would encourage you to read it with me. Get your own eyes on it. Maybe study it later. Don't take my word for what is said, but read the word of God for yourself to see what he has in it for you. The word says this. During those days, another crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to himself and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. If I send them a home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a very great distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread for them to eat? Jesus asked, how many loaves do you have? I want to just stop for a moment and talk a little bit. If you've been with us for the series, this should sound pretty familiar. As a matter of fact, if you've, if you've listened or if you've read along in the Gospel of Mark, you might find yourself flipping back a few chapters and think, haven't we just heard this story? 
Like, didn't this story just happen? And the answer is yes, kind of, but no. This is another unique experience of Jesus. As a matter of fact, I would say when you're studying the scriptures, there's so much overlap, you, you could be forgiven if you thought it was the same story told twice. You know, we live in a time of scholarly wisdom and rationale that we can figure these things out, and, and you say, oh, well, someone just wrote down that story again, didn't they? It sounds so familiar. Why teach the same lesson again? But today, directly from the Gospel of Mark, we will hear that these are indeed two separate stories, and for good reason. For good reason. We're going to get to that later on today. So we have Jesus here in that same place. I want to talk just for a moment about the place, in case you weren't here last week to hear this, right? But Jesus is traveling throughout the, the region of the Decapolis right now, which is the Ten Cities. And the Decapolis has become a pretty um, prominent role or figure in the Gospel of Mark because of a couple of things. First of all, last week we, we remember that he did great healing there in Decapolis. Remember the woman who said, um, if, uh, if, you know, would you heal my daughter? And, and he said, I can't give crumbs to dogs. And she's like, even, even the crumbs sustain dogs, right? Like, just give me something. And he did. Or he, he healed the man who was deaf-mute, we remember last week. But before that, when he first came to this region in the boat and he got off, the man came running to him from the tombs, and he was out of his mind, and he threw himself before Jesus, and he said, What do you want to do with me, son of God? Because the demons, the evil spirits inside of him, knew who Jesus was. As a matter of fact, we're building toward this moment in the Gospel of Mark where others begin to have, have said who Jesus is, and they're beginning to recognize it, but, but not the disciples. They don't fully understand yet who he is. They've not yet confessed what demons have confessed about Jesus being the very son of God. It's interesting because of the copless, I want to mention that guy again, the guy in the tombs, because you remember at the end, he begged Jesus to go with him. After he was healed, his demons were cast out into the, the pigs. Remember, the pigs ran down into the ocean or the sea. In that moment, he said, please take me with you. I mean, right? Can you imagine how badly he wanted to go? But Jesus said, no, you must stay here. And, and then Jesus went in the boat, and then the guy went all throughout the Decapolis, the word says, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, sharing what Jesus had done. That's important because now we have Jesus with the disciples coming back to the same region, and they kind of know who he is. Hence the woman last week, would you heal my daughter? Because she had heard of Jesus. There had been a good witness by this one who was crazy in the tombs about who Jesus is and what Jesus' presence in our lives means. So much so that others knew and were drawn to him. So look, it says, during those same days in that same area of Decapolis, a large crowd gathered. Again, this is a whole bunch of people following Jesus. And we heard that Jesus said, they've been with us for three days, right? So I want you to get the image of what's happening. Jesus is going through the Decapolis, uh, Decapolis region, and he is um, preaching the good news. We, we, we know he continues to preach the good news. The kingdom of, of heaven is near indeed here. And as they walk through the region, it's like more and more people just kind of join in, walking behind you, following Jesus. I'm sure witnessing the miracles of Jesus, in awe of Jesus, that they were beside themselves with the work that he did. Everything was good. And so they're following, this large crowd is following Jesus through the Decapolis, but this is Jesus' response. He says, they've had nothing to eat, 
Because of that, he calls the disciples to himself, and he, and he asks the disciples a question. Now, you remember last time this happened in the, the feeding of the 5,000, it was the disciples who said, um, let's send them away now because it's going to get dark soon, and they're going to be starving. Let's, let, we, can't, we can't feed these people. And Jesus said, you feed them. So they brought the issue last time. Interestingly enough, this time, Jesus brings up the issue to the disciples. After three days of walking around with these people, and you must take him at his word that they literally have had nothing to eat for three days. The word that stands out in this is Jesus' response to the people's needs. You see, what does the word say? It says, Jesus had compassion for the people. He had compassion for the people. I want to give you two definitions. We've talked about it before at Family Bible, but I want to, like, stuck in our minds what this means, the compassion of Jesus Christ. Two things. It means, first of all, that he suffers with us. It literally means in the Greek to suffer with. Passion means to suffer. Com compassion is like the common is like with someone in common suffering. You enter in and Jesus enters into the suffering of the people following him. He is not the kind of leader that is ahead of them and ignorant of their suffering behind him. He is not the kind of leader that is ahead of us and ignorant of our suffering behind him. And so in this moment, he recognizes Jesus, the need of the people, and the word says he has compassion on them. But of course, the second thing which I've told you before, and I, again, I want this like viscerally in us, is that Jesus is sick to his stomach about the condition of the people. See, it's kind of funny, but if you think about it, their hunger pains are his hunger pains. And you might go, well, yeah, if they haven't eaten in three days, maybe Jesus hadn't eaten in three days either, right? But you remember at the beginning of his ministry, he was 40 days and 40 nights in the desert with no food. You remember that the temptation of Jesus by Satan was turning this, this uh, rock into a loaf of bread. That was the, te the test because he was so hungry. There was a real physical need. So I would think if you did 40 days and nights in the desert, you could do three days without really thinking about it. <laughs> but here Jesus recognizes the needs of the people following him and he's, he, he feels their hunger pains. I think it's important we understand that. He's not distant from them. He's with them. He's, he's the kind of God, the kind of leader, who does not stand idly by, distant of his people's suffering. All the time, we have that question in our lives. Where is Jesus when I'm suffering? And the word says repeatedly, he suffers with us. He is sick to his stomach about the things. As a matter of fact, you remember last time, the feeding of the 5,000, he said he had compassion on the people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. His, his gut-wrenching pain then was not about food. It was about salvation. It was about someone loving these people and caring for these people and their lostness, their hopelessness. And it moved him in his guts. We can take these miracles and we can pull them antiseptically out of the text and we can go oh look it's so cool he did this cute uh spectacle but that is not what motivates jesus that is not what's driving him in the text we have to believe what the bible says is true and the bible says that he had compassion on the people he says to himself i have compassion for these people they have already been with me for three days and had nothing to eat if I send them away hungry, they will faint on their way back to their house. They're not going to make it. And again, this isn't like an idol, well, they're going to be pretty hungry until dinner. Like, they aren't going to make the walk home. They've followed me far too far. Think about that idea for a moment. Following Jesus to the point that if you were to turn back, you were to die. 
you're going to pass out on the road. You got your wife and your children with you following Jesus, and you've gone so far after him that if you turn around now, you're never going to make it back to safety, right? Jesus said, they will collapse. It's not they might. They're going to collapse. So get this. So the last time Jesus asked the, the, the disciples asked Jesus about sinning, right? Hey, let's send these people away. And Jesus said this, you feed them, right? He answered them. But look at the, well, this is so funny to me. The disciples answered Jesus is what the Bible says. Where in this remote place can we get enough bread to feed them? Right? The, the remote place means a desert place. They were out in the wilderness with Jesus. They had followed him out of the coplis, out of the cities, into the wilderness. And they were in a desert where there was no food around. Which must be funny in a way because if you think about the history of Judaism, being in the desert without food usually isn't a problem for God. Is it? It's not usually a problem. But for people, it's a huge problem. Start a riot about that. The disciples, <laughs> this, is, this is something that's maybe typical of us, but Jesus sees needs and people see problems, <laughs> right? Like Jesus says, you know, I can't send him home without feeding him. And the disciples say, this is never going to work. That, the disciples who've been walking around with Jesus, if you've been listening to the Bible with us, who've seen all the stuff he's done, have the audacity to answer him and say, this is not how we're going to get food out here in the desert. How is it possible? Jesus asked the question, sounds very much like the last time, how many loaves of bread do you have? They answered this way, uh, we have seven. He told the crowd to set down on the ground, sounds familiar. And then he, when he had taken the seven loaves and he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set down in front of the people, and they did so. The disciples also had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for the fish, or he blessed the fish, and he told the disciples to set them before the people, and they did. So a couple of interesting little things, right? If you're into uh, numbers and numerology and stuff, right? Last time it was 5,000 people and five loaves, right? One loaf per thousand people. You go, okay, that's a good ratio. But this time it is 4,000 people and seven loaves, different ratio. Last time it was two small fish, I think, and this time it's a few small fish, Right? And I, I can't really even unpack necessarily why the disciples are carrying around bread and fish but don't have enough for other people to eat for three days. Like, I don't know what's going on with that either. I'll just let that sit there. But he says, what do you have to share? What are you, you going to offer to solve the problem? And they offer the seven loaves and the few small fish. We get this image now from Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all prophecy, that in a moment of of need in a moment of a problem where, where, where he sees the people's need and, and the people see the problem with the need as to how this is ever going to work out. He does this remarkable thing where he gives thanks for what God has already provided, right? Do you see it? It says Jesus gave thanks for the seven loaves that were offered. He gives thanks. Of course, in the first time he looked to the heaven, it says, and it actually says the first time in the miracle, the first miracle it says he blessed the bread from heaven. But this time, I love this word we've talked about before, but he eucharistoed. Many of you may have been raised in a faith tradition where you celebrated Eucharist. And you might have remembered the time where someone would hold the bread up high like this and it would be the Eucharist, the Eucharisto. This is the moment of thanksgiving because God has provided enough. 
And in some ways, you must recognize that with 4,000 people and seven loaves, the Eucharisto is a prayer of faith. <laughs> because the disciples still don't see how it's going to happen. By the way, the disciples had the seven loaves when they said, we can't feed these people. Didn't they have those already? They saw the problem. They saw this. They're like, this isn't going to work. I want us to see this moment, this holy moment with Jesus where he Eucharistos. He gives God thanks. There's some ways we carry this forward in our own families, you know. We um, often say grace before a meal. Does anyone ever think about why is it called grace before a meal? One of the jokes in our family is someone will sit down and say, who wants to say grace? And someone will go, grace. <laughs> right? <laughs> is that what we're doing? Saying grace? The, the word Eucharisto means a good thanks or it means a good grace. And the idea of giving thanks is to take whatever God has placed in our hands in that moment of need and to say, thank you for what you provided for us. It's more than we need. So it doesn't matter if you're at a king's table with all the food you can imagine or if you're in a corner with one piece of bread. You say, thank you, God, for your good grace. And it should be telling that Jesus himself did not think himself above such a thing to say, God, thank you for the seven loaves of bread. I don't think this is Jesus pretending so that we get the message and we can pretend like he pretended. I think he means it. I'm, I'm, I'm sick about the condition of these people. What do you have? We have seven loaves. God, thank you for the seven. Well, how many fish? We've got a few fish. God, thank you for the fish. Now set it before the people, the 4,000. By the way, um, if you're into numbers, the Gospel of Matthew records the same exact miracles in the same exact order, and it makes one caveat. It says it's 5,000 people plus women and children. The Gospel of Matthew says the same thing here. It's 4,000 people plus women and children. The estimates are probably 10,000 people eating seven loaves of bread and a few fish. It's a lot of people. I can't, I, I can't get my head around really what it looks like like to be there. I, I know in my own life I've never seen the abundance of God run out. I've never one time seen the abundance of God run out. I've never ran dry with Jesus, not once. When I've offered things to him, I've never seen it. But in the same way, I can't imagine when you're there, did they see the miracle happening or they just keep taking the bread and putting it in front of people and going back? I, I don't know how that worked. But the word says that he Christoed and the apostles, the disciples served and brought the food before the people and set it down. And on it, on it goes. And then here it is again in verse 8. Here it is in verse 8. You've got to catch it, man. It's the same thing as last time. The people ate and were satisfied. It's the same thing as last time, guys. They were full. <laughs> they weren't functioning from, oh, if I could just get a little more, I would finally be satisfied. They had gorged themselves on bread, right? I mean, they had ate so much bread, they could not eat anymore. It wasn't like they were trying to be kind and nice and just take a nice little Christian portion. We don't want to offend Jesus. He's trying to make this miracle happen. They were like, you know, just eating the food. It's been three days since they ate, right? Like, they're not like being, they're like, it's like, they're like devouring the food after three days. And then they have your belly full after three days, probably ready for a nap. 
I'd be ready for a nap, I think, right away. <laughs> Three days walking around with Jesus and eat all that bread and fish. And just and imagine the crowd and the smell and the noise and the, the food, the celebration, eating abundantly in the desert, in the wilderness with God, where it's not possible. Who has a feast in the desert? They ate, and they were satisfied. And the word says this, afterwards the disciples went around and they picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. If you're astute, and if you have a good memory, you might remember last time that, that the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of leftover, right? Which I always thought was funny because it was 12 disciples, 12 apostles, I should say, and and so you have these, you know, guys who are saying, we can't feed these people, and then picking up enough for me to have a whole basket full. I can't even eat it myself. But here it's interesting because you have more bread, less people, and you have less basketfuls. I thought, well, that's pretty interesting. It says they picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Here it is in verse 9. About 4,000 men were present, and Mark, Matthew says, and not counting women and children. Um, and then Jesus sent them away. So... I went back to look to see what's going on with these, uh, these baskets, right? And what I found out is interesting because the words are not the same. And, and this is just kind of, I don't know, footnote. I don't know. It's interesting to me, right? But when the disciples went around and they picked up the 12 basketfuls, it means they were kind of hand basketfuls. They were wicker baskets is what the word actually means. Um, tightly woven, smaller baskets that you would carry around and you would kind of receive Go ahead and put your leftover food in here to bring it back to Jesus because he needs it apparently. Collect the, the remains and bring it back. Isn't that funny? And, and so they did that, right? And they had 12 the first time. But the word here um, is actually a different word and it doesn't mean the same basket. When there's seven of them, it means they went around and they had these other baskets. And the truth is that this basket is even big enough because the baskets that they carried around for the seven were woven differently, not like this. They're woven in like that kind of pattern, you know, of like the squares. You ever seen that in a basket? It's like flat woven baskets. So they're lighter, but they're bigger, right? They're a little wonkier. Um, they're kind of meant to be like head baskets, right? You ever seen people carrying a basket on their head? Because it carries a lot more. It's heavy, right? And they went around, and one more thing, they were actually called um, hampers. This is actually my hamper. But they were actually called hampers. And the funny thing was that the baskets were of such size that a person could get inside. Now, I can't get inside this basket. My kids maybe get inside this basket, but I can't get inside. Interesting. Interesting, because wait a minute. The first time the disciples say, how's this going to happen? They bring back 12 of these little guys, Right? Then, then the second time they say, how's this going to happen? They bring back seven of these big guys. Full of bread. You've got to wonder, too, by the way, what are they going to do with it? <laughs> you know, they don't have, like, like, Tupperware to put it in. Like, what are they going to do with all this bread? They will find out. So there's something proportionality. There's something in the escalation of events that Jesus is trying to show the disciples. He's trying to teach them something here. He's trying to show the crowd's compassion, but he's trying to show through instruction to disciples something greater. This is what the word says. After the 4,000 men and women and children, plus women and children had eaten, he sent them away, he dismissed them, and he got into the boat with his disciples and he set off to the region of Dalmutha, Dalmanutha, 
Okay, so he's back in the boat, right? And this is what happens. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. So now you've got to imagine, he's traveling from a region of people who are not uh, Jews to back to the Jewish region. And the Pharisees meet him at the docks, it seems, right? And they came to question Jesus, to test him, and they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and he said, why does this generation keep asking for miraculous signs? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left, got back in the boat, and crossed the other side. And there's this little moment here where you say, wait a minute, Pharisees, do you not know what he just did on the other side of the lake? Do you not see what he just did on the other side of the sea? He just fed all these people with seven loaves. And they come and they're asking for a sign. This is the second major movement. The first is the feeding of 4,000, but the second is seeking after a sign from the Son of God. You remember that the Pharisees were religious folks? They were pretty sure they knew what they knew and why they knew it. They knew Scripture very, very well. But when they come to Jesus, it says they are seeking a sign. And I thought that was really interesting. Because one of my favorite verses in the Bible, I don't know if you know my favorite Bible verses or not, but it's actually Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be answered. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Because everyone who asks is answered. And everyone who seeks is finds. And everyone who knocks the door is always opened. I love that. And here to the Pharisees, when Jesus shows up, they come to Jesus seeking. I think, well, isn't that fair to the Pharisees to seek? But if you read the word carefully, you'll see what they seek. They don't seek truth. They don't seek Jesus. They seek a sign. And not only just a sign, but they seek a sign from heaven. The, the word's a little more complex than just simple seeking that Matthew records when he says, ask, seek, and knock. It means that they've come together on the same team against Jesus. Some translations say they came um, uh, disputing Jesus, right? They, they, their motivation isn't pure seeking. They, they really have no interest in Jesus. They have interest in Jesus proving something to them. As a matter of fact, later on it says what? That they might test him that they might quiz him, that they might poke holes in his claims. You see, they are not there for a real, authentic relationship with Jesus. They're there to be right. And Jesus has this remarkable response. Because if you've been reading along the Gospel of Mark, it's been sign after sign after sign after sign that he is who he says he is. That, that the people have identified, that the demons have identified, that the people are trying to go, wait, we know who this guy is, right? You see what he's doing? The blind see, the, the lame walk, the deaf hear. And, and, and sinners are set free. And the Pharisees are like, we'll believe it when you can show us a sign. Prove it to us. Matter of fact, lest you think we're being too hard on the Pharisees here, the same word used for the testing that they're doing of Jesus here is the same word that is used when Satan is testing Jesus as he comes out of the wilderness, starving. The same word. They're, they're not, it's almost like they're trying to tempt Jesus prove it. And we talked about this before, but there's a fundamental misunderstanding of their relationship to this man who's before them, that they are not superior or over him or judging him. They are under him and under his rule. He is not beneath them, but above them. And they come demanding or seeking a sign to experiment with Jesus, to have a little fun. This elicits in Jesus something remarkable, a deep sigh. 
And we talked last week when he healed the guy with the deaf mute. He put his finger and he, and he says he breathed like the Lamas, breathing like, like that, you know. But this one's a little different because it starts low and goes high, right? And I thought, well, how would a, a side that goes, starts low and goes high sound? It'd be like this. Ah! And if you hear that from another person, you probably think, well, that person's pretty frustrated. <laughs> you know what I mean? Everybody, my guy's going to snap. And I think that's probably a fair assessment of what Jesus is thinking right now. Having been moved with compassion for the people who are far from God. Having, having you know, given of himself. Traveling, wearing himself out. Saying the kingdom of God is near. And they show up and they go, yeah, well, give us a sign. He's like, oh, are you kidding me? You, you should know better than anyone else. And you know what he says? You will never get a sign. And I think, well, now, wait a minute, Jesus. I know this ain't the last of your miracles. We need this no sign for this generation. Another way you can interpret that is family. This group, you will not see a sign from me. And there should be some instruction in that for us. For those of us, because, you know, okay, this is the Pharisees. That's their problem, right? But, but what about us? What if we go, you know, Jesus, I believe you who you are, say you are whenever you prove it to me. I'm going to judge you and who you say you are. You demonstrate your power in my, you show up in the way I demand for you. And we have the audacity to stand there and, and stand tapping our toes and judging Jesus for what he can or can't do when he's God. He has nothing to prove. And there's an irony, a rich irony in the fact that those who demand a sign will never see one. You know, I've heard remarkable stories about people who've seen signs and wonders. And, and the ones that, for me, are most compelling are the ones who said, I could never have imagined it. <laughs> we were in this crazy situation. I see no way out. We were just crying out to God, anything in your mercy, and then God did something I can't even explain. That, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah? You, you, you were uncomfortable even talking about it? Yeah, I'm pretty comfortable talking about it because this is crazy. It's weird. I just showed up in some crazy way in my life. Versus people who would say, right now, prove it. I'm, I'm going to call down the power of God right now. I'm going I'm I'm to command the power. I'm not comfortable with that. God is not subservient to us as people. He is not beneath us lest we could judge him. It's a ridiculous concept. And we see in the Pharisees, and we go, well, that's ridiculous, Pharisees. But then we do it ourselves, right? Maybe you think, ah, you don't. You don't demand things of God, right? Look at what happens next then. Jesus gets back in the boat, 13. 14, the disciples had forgotten to bring the bread. You know, I said earlier, we're going to do all that bread they had left over. They just forgot it. That's what they did with all the bread. <laughs> you know, seven basketfuls, like hampers full of bread. They're like, oh, did anybody grab the bread? No. Nobody? Did anybody grab any bread? Except the one loaf that they had with them in the boat is what the NIV says. The, the Greek is so funny here because it says, if they had one, they had none. <laughs> you know, meaning like they probably didn't have any bread. They were freaking out about the bread. Who was supposed to grab the bread? Jesus says this. He taught them. It says, the word says, he taught them this. Look out, perceive the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. Now they're in the boat. They've had this miracle of bread. They've had the, the Pharisees asking for a sign. And then Jesus instructs them in this way. And they're already thinking, we forgot the bread. And Jesus says, be, be warned about the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of, the, of Herod. 
And, and in that moment, the word says that the disciples discussed this. They dialogued to one another about this. And they said, he's saying this because we don't have the bread. So get the picture. Fed 4,000 people. Seven baskets. Forgot the bread. In the boat with Jesus. He brings up yeast. And you're like, this is awkward, right? He's talking about the bread. And I'm sure they're pointing fingers at who was responsible to bring the bread on the boat, right? Somebody was supposed to do that job and didn't do it. But 17 says this. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about not having bread? Huh? He basically says this has nothing to do with bread. When I'm telling you to be warned, uh, be wary, to be careful, to look out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of the Herodians or the, of Herod, I'm not talking about physical bread. I'm not talking about, did you bring the loaves? So this got me thinking, well, what is the yeast? And this is a little hard work, church, but what is the yeast of the Pharisees that Jesus is warning his disciples about? You know, I said the, the issue with the Pharisees isn't that, oh, they got problems back there, but oh, we got problems right here. That we have a tendency to walk that same road and to demand things of God that we don't have a right to demand of God. We have, a, we have a, a tendency to proclaim self-righteousness because we know the rules better than anybody else, but we don't know the rules better than anybody else. And we certainly don't follow them better than anybody else. What is the yeast of the Pharisees? And what is the yeast of Herod? Before we, I, I want to talk about it, but before we do, I found this really fascinating. Has anyone ever looked into what yeast is? How many of you have used yeast in your lives? So a few. I wouldn't say a large portion, but a few people have used yeast in their lives. I actually brought some this morning along. We're not going to do anything exciting with it. Oh, I hope I didn't lose it. Maybe it's gone. The funny thing about yeast is it is single-cell organisms, right? I just, there's this awesome, awesome YouTube video I watched on this. Um, here it is. Because I was like, what is yeast? And the video is called, What is Yeast in Bread? How does yeast work in bread? So I recommend you watch it. It's like a five-minute video. It's awesome. But they did a great job of explaining what yeast is. Now, this is funny, because this little packet is full of yeast. This little packet is full of yeast, right? But the funny thing about the yeast that we put in bread is it, it's dormant. It's sleeping, right? Matter of fact, the, the video that I watched described them as little monsters that are sleeping. That was a pretty funny description. And the little monsters wake up whenever you put them in warm water with a little bit of sugar. They wake up. The funny thing about yeast that I was just blown away, I knew nothing about yeast before this, by the way, I'm not going to bake bread tomorrow, I don't think. Maybe I will, I doubt it, right? But is that they said, if the water is too cold, the yeast won't activate. And if the water is too hot, you'll kill them. But if the water is just right, just that kind of nice, safe, middle of the road, don't get too crazy, don't stand too far away, boy, the yeast can go crazy in that situation, Right? That's what causes the yeast to live. I couldn't help but hear that description and think of Jesus saying, I'd rather you be hot or cold than lukewarm. I want to spit you out of my mouth. There's this danger in this kind of middle of the road, complacent, laid back, it's all going to be okay Christianity. And he's like, I'd rather you ignore me completely or be fire hot passionate than to live in this space where this garbage can fester inside of my people. By the way, let's don't forget, he's not talking about the world. He doesn't tell the world, watch the yeast of the Pharisees. He tells the people who are following him, disciples. He's instructing disciples in the boat. Be careful, look out for the yeast of the Pharisees. See, the way this works is 
The yeast eats the sugar, my understanding, right, from this five-minute video, and they belch, maybe, maybe other ways, CO2. And then the gluten in bread causes to bind, and then it causes it to rise up and let it set in a dark place, and it puffs up and puffs up and puffs up. Man, the imagery is ridiculous for this. Like, how did, well, Jesus is God, right? I'm like, how did Jesus know to use the yeast as an analogy? It's ridiculously accurate for what happens in our lives. That these little things come to life when we're lukewarm. They begin to fester inside of us. They make a big deal out of nothing. And we get all puffed up in dark places. And I, I was thinking, like, well, what's the problem? Because, you know, bread's pretty good with yeast in it, right? Like, it, it's actually what you might call showbread. It's really pretty bread, you know? It's the stuff you want to put out in front of your guests. Look at the bread. Oh, it smells so good. It looks so good so tasty and fluffy and I think if I had to put a word on it the problem overall with the yeast is that it doesn't add anything of value it doesn't add any substance see Jesus is all about substance he's not feeding 4,000 people because he's trying to impress somebody he's about feeding 4,000 people because they're hungry substance. I think it's easy to miss that, but it's, it's, you know, very straightforward. So then that's yeast. So what's the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod? Real quickly now, the yeast of the Pharisees seemed obvious to me to be one of testing, of, of pr making God prove who he is in your life, this pharisaical, um, this puffing up of who you think you are. I've read the Bible five times. I know what the Bible says, and, and I know better than you, and I'm a, I'm a Bible quizzer or whatever. I can, I can outquote scripture on you. I, I know, and you distance yourself from the reality of your broken, sinful position. The Pharisees had no interest in knowing Jesus. They had interest in him proving himself to them so they could validate him. Jesus, you get a sticker, because we think you're who you say you are. He ain't interested. But, I do believe, and there are Pharisees, remember Nick at night, Nick and Nicodemus, right? That dude comes to Jesus seeking God and says, how can I be saved? And he says, God's going to give his only son that all who believe will be saved. And Nicodemus is there at the end with Jesus. He's a believer in Jesus. So if there's genuine seeking for a genuine answer, a real relationship, Jesus answers, but he don't play games. And the Pharisees are about playing religious games. And we can fall into that same trap, that, that, uh, that puffiness, right? Then the second is, what's the yeast of Herod? If you want to think about Herod, you have to go all the way back now to John the Baptist being beheaded. You remember he married his brother's wife, right? And then his brother's wife's uh, daughter, I believe it was, danced, and he said, you can have it you want. And she went to her mom, and she said, give me John the Baptist, and he was beheaded. And, and you think, well, now what in the world? And uh, Dale actually shared, he said, he was known as um, Herod the Tetrarch because he didn't really have any land. He ruled over um, uh, Galilee, this area where Jesus is right now. He, he ruled over the area of Galilee. That was, his, that was his dominion, but he didn't really own it. He was like a false ruler, like not really false, but like he represented Rome to the Jewish people, but he was kind of Jewish by being raised that way. And so you have Herod, and you think, well, what's the yeast of Herod then? If, if the Pharisees are poking holes in Jesus and demanding a sign and all that stuff, what's the yeast that they should be careful of? 
And the best I can figure is this, that there's this idea that we're going to, through our own ambition, through political will, through our manipulation of the situation, that we're going to come out ahead, that we are going to make things happen. I think that's what Herod thought. Remember, the problem that Herod had was that John the Baptist said, you should not have married your brother's wife. It's not right. It's not holy. It's not of God. And, and, and rather than repenting of the behavior, he doubled down on it. He says, I'm above the law. I'm above all that. And he, he's trying, he's not a king, but he's trying to act like he's a king. He's not a king, by the way. This Herod is not a king. But he tries to rule by power and authority. This is the thing where people use their faith uh, when it's good for them. Um, um, you put the, the fish on your business card when it's good for business. Um, you, you know what I mean? You, 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 you say things like, um, God bless the state of Illinois, God bless the United States, and God bless America. And you only mean it for manipulation, not for genuine faith. And I know you're probably thinking, wait, wait a minute, stepping on some toes, but that's the truth. That's, that's, that's feigning faith. That's playing games with something that God says is holy and sacred and real. Don't, don't do that. It's dropping key words so that others know that you are with them, even though you're probably not with them. It's about choosing politics or our own power instead of submitting to the political authority of God himself, that he is king above all kings. There's this great quote in uh, 1 Corinthians. I think I have it here. Let me see, I'll push two slides. And it says, it's from uh, 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Let me hit one more. Don't mess the guys up in the back. And this is Paul writing to the church, and he says, We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. I think the fundamental difference is that, that Jesus is like, be careful the knowledge that puffs you up, but be all about the love that builds up, builds you up and builds others up. That, that real deal, authentic faith. And I think it's fair to say that we have to be on guard against it because Jesus said, be wary, be on guard, look out. It's a constant action that we would step back from the yeast that would puff us up and into the authentic relationship with Jesus where we're ultimately dependent on him to do anything of good or anything of consequence. As a matter of fact, nothing can be done Apart from him. So after that, Jesus is explaining and he says, It's not about bread. Check it out. Do you still not see or perceive? Are your hearts hard within you? Do you have eyes but fail to see? Do you have ears but fail to hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves, look to the line of questioning he asks. For 5,000 people, how many baskets did you pick up? And they answered 12. And Jesus said, and when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000 people, how many basketfuls did you pick up? And they answered seven. He just said, don't you remember? Don't you recognize? This is not about bread. Every time they've asked the question, how could we do that? He's right there with them every time, right? He, Jesus said this to them. Do you not yet understand? Don't you get it? Don't you understand? And, and I, I um, you know, you think about this moment where Jesus takes the disciples back to these moments. I said, 
two distinct teaching moments. Jesus is like, don't you remember how good I've been? Don't you remember how, how much I've provided for my people? Don't you remember seeing how compassionate I am? And you think I care about having bread in the boat? He has no need of bread. He supplies all we need. See, we're coming back to this idea of being satisfied in Jesus. <laughs> like, that's the whole deal, folks. Being satisfied in Jesus. Not being satisfied in Jesus if he does what you want. Not being satisfied, you know, if you get your way or if you can demonstrate your power. But being satisfied because he's sufficient. He's enough. He's more than enough. Don't you remember how many basketfuls did you pick up? They're like so many basketfuls. We look back on our lives. We ought to recognize the abundance that Jesus has provided for us. The more than we need. We look back in our lives and the suffering. We ought to recognize the compassion that Jesus had for us. That he's with us, not apart from us. This is the warning and this is the danger. That we would forget God. Forget his goodness. Be dissatisfied with him. And seek satisf satisfaction in the world. It's completely screwed up. It's completely screwed up. I want to pray and... I, I, I'm going to invite you to pray with me that we would ultimately be satisfied in Jesus, that our full satisfaction, just like those guys were walking around, those women, those children who were hungry after three days. Imagine kids after three days whining about how hungry they are and then how full they felt. This is the imagery. This is the call that Jesus has for his people. Be filled in me. I don't know what it is. Maybe this morning I'm talking and you're like, man, there's been that thing I've been demanding of Jesus and i got to stop demanding things of Jesus. Right? He's good. He's worthy. I'm just going to set his feet and go, God, I thank you so much, you Christ. I want to give you thank you so much for your grace. Maybe even thank you for the grace and suffering. Thank you for how you've sustained me. What is it in your life? Let's go and talk to God together. Oh, Father God, we just thank you so much for the good news of your great and abundant love for your people. We thank you so much, Father, that you would give yourself that we could be full, that we would be satiated, that we would have want of nothing, we would have need for nothing. Father God, that we would come to you empty, drained, wore out. And maybe we're like that. Maybe, maybe we're like those Pharisees and we've been demanding a sign. You prove who you are. I pray today we'd repent of that behavior. We just turn. You don't owe us anything, but you've given us more than we deserve. Father, for the same warning of, the, of Harry, which seems kind of abstract, but our desire to take political control and to exercise what, what, you know, what we want in your name, that we would step away from that and say, God, what you want. We want what you want. You are God over all creation, king of kings. We don't have to lord it over people and rule over them in our lives. We just sit and just celebrate your reign, your rule, your authority. And Father, for your mercy in Jesus Christ and your right that when you have a right to destroy us, when you have a right to cast us into hell for eternity, when you have a right to force us to bear all of our sins and pay fully forever the price of our failures and our, our hatred of you, instead, your enemies, you pour out your love on the cross. You just cover us. You save us when we don't deserve it. And you lift us from the garbage pile of life and you set us in your 
presence in your kingdom, your throne room, and you just invite us to be part of your people. It is too much to imagine. But we celebrate it. We thank you for it. And many of us have come today hungry. I pray we find satisfaction in you. Guide us toward that satisfaction in you. We love you so much. We thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you together. In Jesus' name, amen.